1: But your eyes tell you it's true. Shut. I'll turn
0: up the sound so you can hear the monsters dueling to the death.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 220 of the Kaiju Cast, a podcast 100% dedicated to Godzilla and all of his rubber-suited foes. My name is Kyle, and this is the first episode of December 2017, and a very special episode with Ed Gojicheski and Steve Rifle, who are going to be on the program in just a couple minutes to talk about their new book, Ishiro Honda, A Life in Film, From Godzilla to Kurosawa. Now, we've had Ed and Steve on the show multiple times before. They're always a lot of fun to talk to, especially to hear their stories. And lucky for me, I happen to be in a city with a really great theater who hosted a Mothra screening, which both Ed and Steve came to Portland to introduce and sign their books afterwards. And it was a really great event. We had a lot of people come out, and, uh, I mean, it was almost a full theater. So all of those people got to see a gorgeous print, a 35-millimeter print, Japanese language with English subtitles of Mothra. It was fantastic. And you know what? Because it was so cool and because I had such a great time with those guys at the screening and actually showing them around Portland too, I think we're going to intro this episode with a little Mothra music. Joining me here in the studio, I have Steve Rifle and Ed Godziszewski, who wrote Ishiro Honda, a life in film from Godzilla to Kurosawa, available now. And they are actually literally here in Portland, which is really exciting for me because Ed's been here once before that I've hung out with him. And uh, this is the first time Steve's been up here to hang out with me. And we're going to be going to the Hollywood Theater tomorrow night to watch Mothra, intro Mothra, and they're going to be signing their books. Well, first up, Welcome. Thank Welcome you. to the Kaiju Cast, you guys. Thank you. And by the Thank time you. they
2: listen to this, <laughs> the event will be long since passed, but it, trust us, it was just a raging success. It was amazing. It was amazing. The
1: crowd went wild. Right. They laughed at all the right places. I'm sure everything was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, uh, I got to first ask, how did you guys start working together? Oh. Cause you guys have been I'm working ex- together for quite a while. Not even sure exactly how we
2: started <laughs> working together, but I remember how we met. Because, uh, I think I told you this story and I'm sure I've told Ed, uh, in 1994, there was, um, the first meeting of the, I think it's called the Godzilla Society of North America. Is that right? Yeah. And, uh, this was the first meeting of what became G-Con and Mm G-Fest. And I'm not even sure if that first meeting had a name, did it? No. No, It was just a, it was announced in the pages of G-Fan. And, uh, it was at a hotel near the O'Hare airport in Chicago. And I'd been hemming and hawing and wanting to go to this thing, but it was kind of like conflicting with work. And I wasn't sure I could make it. And, you know, I didn't make good plans ahead of time. And then I said to my wife, um, Hey, you know, let's drive to Chicago. There's this thing that I want to go to on Saturday. And, and we left on Thursday night. <laughs> we drove,
1: from Los Angeles. Yeah, from Los Angeles. and so we drove 36
2: <laughs> yeah. hours in a rented Pontiac. And by the way, that was the most uncomfortable car I've <laughs> ever been in. It was horrible. It was some, what is the, the Pontiac Sunfire or something like this? It had really uncomfortable seats, but it was cheap. And we, it were, there were three of us. Uh, my brother-in-law was recruited. And the idea was that we would drive in shifts. And, um, but right. I, I, if you know, do you know where San Bernardino is in relation to Los Angeles?
1: I feel like I should.
2: Well, it's maybe 50 miles outside. <laughs> I was supposed to drive to, to Las Vegas and then we would trade. I started to fall asleep at, um, at San Bernardino <laughs> and my brother-in-law ended up driving. God bless him. Uh, probably two-thirds of the way to Chicago, but we made it. We didn't die. And we got there in thirty-six hours. Of course, by the time I got there, I felt like garbage. But I met Ed. And I met him, <laughs> I met a lot of other people there. And uh yeah. and I but Ed was like this legend. Um <laughs> <Come on. laughs> Well I was gonna say, you know, but then I met him. <laughs> but uh Ed was uh when I was in eighth grade, uh the first issue of Fangoria magazine came out. And uh the cover story was the uh a timeline, a history of the Godzilla series up to that point. Oh, cool. So what year was that published? Around 78 or something? 79. Like 79. And, um, so it mm-hmm. had a history of the films up till Terror of Mecha Godzilla, but it also had all this cool information about these other projects that were announced and maybe were forthcoming, like Godzilla versus the Devil. Was, mm-hmm. That was the first place I, anyway, th- this great story. And then it had the, um, the cover art or the cover art was from the, Luigi Cozy Goz- oh, yeah, yeah. Co- law that was the mm-hmm. uh, the poster art that was on the cover of the magazine and it's a the magazine you should pick it up if you don't have it it's super the it's suitable for fra- framing but and then the um uh the first page of the article I think had a full full page uh, reproduction of the art from the Godzilla battling Megalon atop the oh, world, yeah. world Trade Center mm-hmm. anyway but I'm reading this story and I'm sharing the article with my friends and I thought it was a joke because the author of the piece was yeah. Ed Godzalaski. Basically, <laughs> the first five letters of his last name are the first five letters. I just thought it was a name somebody made up. Yeah. And then, you know, later on, I, I discovered his uh, magazine, Japanese Giants, and I learned, you know, more about his work. Anyway, so, uh, at this meeting in Chicago, uh, I met him. I think I must have arranged it ahead of time. I can't remember if I'd called you ahead of time or something. No. Well, but somehow just, I ended up interviewing him and Bill. Yeah, oh, you Bill. just said you
0: wanted to talk to us. Yeah, so. I,
2: him and – he and Bill Goodmanson, I interviewed them for like an hour or so. Right. I, and I think I was going to publish it in a – maybe even in G Fan, But the tape broke. So I, <laughs> I never published it anywhere. <laughs> but through the, the conversation, I learned more about him and – um and then at one point you invited me over to your house. I don't know mm-hmm. if it was on that trip or a different trip, maybe the following year, and we just started uh hanging around and doing things. And I can't remember exactly how we started working together, but it was probably was the commentary for the BFI, like the first thing we "quote unquote" worked on together. Yeah,
0: I think it, that's what it was. Okay, your first collab project. Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, for 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 a couple of years, I would be coming to L.A. for business trips and you know I always try and to get together with Steve and uh, then one the one time that I was there for the uh filming of the the Tristar Godzilla because oh, yeah. I I got a uh uh a job as a, an extra for a couple of nights on that film and you know, I told Steve hey you know I snuck they don't on. really they don't really check anything <laughs> right. so you could probably just sneak on a set because after the first night you know I thought for sure that yeah Steve could just come and Nobody's gonna, he won't get paid, but nobody's gonna know or really care. So he just I got kinda, fed. Yeah. So he just jumped on the bus and, uh, the same bus that, you know, I was taking to go over to the, the shooting, at, which was at the seventh street bridge. I think it was, it was in downtown LA, uh, which the... was, which was doubling for the Brooklyn bridge. And, uh, you know, we'd spent from like seven PM to seven AM. In the driving, driving rain, man, those rainmakers are yeah. powerful. Oh, yes, they, <laughs> they are. are. Wet. That was uh, that's hurricane style. Yeah, that's hurricane style. Yeah. And you know that was that was probably one of the the best times we had together. Just yeah. you know hanging around on the set, and uh you wound up with some some interesting people that you
2: oh, and yeah. you, you were with. In, well, in you, the back. you you really had a job because you were yeah. officially there. But I kind of at, at yeah. first had to lay low to avoid the radar. Right, and so um, <laughs> I was off to the side with this group of you know the people who I figured out were regulars. They they kind of were making a living or a semi living as uh, extras on films. Right, and right. And all they basically would do was sit around and complain about the food, <laughs> <laughs> and they would complain about. The, I have the, totally
1: heard about that, yeah, like yeah, industry yeah. talk. Yeah,
2: yeah. They complained that the spaghetti was cold or it was soggy or. You know, the salad had t- terrible dressing and they were sitting there for hours because you don't do anything. I mean, they, it's kind of, you know, it's hurry up and wait. Even as an extra, you just sit around waiting for the, yeah. the ADs to come around and tell you what to do, you know. And at one point I remember because this is an all night shoot. It started at sundown and, and went till sunup. And so, you know, around mm-hmm. two o'clock in the morning, people are tired. You know, they just want to go home, but they, they're waiting for their $50 or whatever they're right, getting in yeah. their free meal. And well, it's not free. You're working for it, yeah. but the point is like, you know, people start to, to dog it in the middle of the night. And I remember the assistant directors with their bullhorns coming over and saying, we shot in New York last month and the crowds there had energy. Come on. Let's show them what kind of energy LA can have. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, whatever, <man."
1: laughs> but, uh, Too yeah, much no, effort. It
2: was fun. I mean, he had, like he said, I snuck on the, the, the location and I just kind of. Laid low, but they ended. I followed him a lot of the way around, and so I'm in line getting wardrobe. And they they gave us cameras. We were like, you know, news cameramen. Oh, nice! And they used yeah. these old prop cameras. They probably were actually in service as news cameras like 30 years before, and they weighed like 50 pounds. <laughs> and you're carrying
1: it around for hours. Yeah.
2: And um, <laughs> can't
1: I be the guy with the microphone? <laughs> yeah, and,
0: and the one I had was uh, I I think that w- that had uh, this. Some probably a tripod base. It was uh, attached to the bottom, and that was like solid, solid iron. So the thing I had was at least a hundred pounds. I was carrying around all night on my shoulder. That was a.
2: You can actually see Ed yeah. in the film. Though. I was about to ask, yeah. is it visible? Well, you have to freeze frame it, but you can see, like, we're all wearing um, hoodies or, or you know uh, poncho kind of things over our head because it's raining. Mm-hmm. But you can see Ed's nose sticking up from his from underneath his poncho. Like you can kind of make yeah. out his face. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah. But you really have to freeze frame it in that group shot where everyone cheers. Cause yeah, <laughs> Godzilla's dead.
1: How does it feel to be, uh, important. visible in such an amazing movie?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that, that's, that's the, <laughs> the two, ed- double edged sword there. You know, yes, I was in a Godzilla movie, but unfortunately it was that Godzilla movie. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a fantastic experience. You, you get an idea why movies cost so much because there's so much waste and mm-hmm. things that they're doing to dress the setup and, and just pretty much create an environment rather than anything that's really gonna be seen on on screen. And as as we
2: were uh as the evening or the morning ended, it basically ended when the sun started to come up. And uh it was fun. We were walking back to the area where the buses or the shuttles would take us back to our cars. And somehow we just ended up walking back with Matthew Broderick and uh Hank Azaria. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean we were talking to them as we were walking back, you know, and they were just really cool friendly guys yeah so that was a nice little way of ending the evening
1: was that towards the end of the filming do you think or well you mean in terms of the schedule Uh, schedule yeah
2: i don't remember i mean it was you haven't memorized
1: the 1998 (laughs) TriStar godzilla schedule i did not but we were there disappointed (laughs) the the night that
2: we were there what they were shooting they were two things i mean it was kind of what i remember is uh the the sort of reaction shots when the monster goes kerplunk on the bridge and dies oh, yeah. and every and there's like a the taxi cab kind of skids to a a stop at the end of the bridge. Yeah. And isn't and I haven't seen it in a long time. And then there's I'm the, smiling and nodding
1: because okay. I don't really remember it myself okay. either. <laughs> and then
2: there's the conversation in the rain where they're walking off the bridge and the phone the guy's phone rings and uh uh Agent, uh, what's his, the character's name? <laughs> Jean Reno's La, character. Yeah, Jean Reno's character is like uh, Philippe Roche or La Roche. Sure, or yeah, yeah. Anyway, he calls him and then he says, what happened to my tape? You took the tape out of my, it was all that conversation. And we were standing, if you, you know, if you see the actors kind of in that, um, formation there, we're kind of standing just outside camera range there. We're, you know, holding our cameras and mics. So that was, but actually,
0: I, <laughs> so there, there's the, the, the shot of the three main characters. You got Maria Patillo and, right. uh, Broderick and who was it Hank Azaria? Uh, was, it, was it Hank Azaria, the third one? Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, no, it wasn't Hank Azaria. It was the, the jerk newscaster guy. Who was that? Oh, oh uh, uh, Harry, uh, Harry Shearer. Shearer? Yeah, Harry Shearer. Right. Nice. The three, so the three of them are, are, you know, basically standing, you know, together in like a semicircle. And I was right next to Matthew Broderick with my camera, but you know, my camera's kind of, covering my face mostly.
1: Yeah. But
0: it's a close up scene and I'm right there in that close up scene. And I know, you know, when I see the scene on film, I was like, I know that's me right there. It's just, you can't really see that it's me. But yeah, I got, I got to stand right next, I got to stand right next to him and uh, through that whole conversation that they're having in that, that final scene, that was,
1: that was pretty fun. That's cool. No, hang on a second. Did you? What's say that it like was your to be a famous only? actor? Yeah, exactly. Ed? Why is why are you so famous? Ed? And how do we leech off your fame? Please. No, uh is that really your only Godzilla appearance? Is in the '98 one? You haven't yeah. ever wormed your way into a Toho production in the summertime?
0: Not, not in the film. I have been there for to watch them do filming, but I never got myself involved. You know, never in running away.
1: Never running no. away. Oh.
0: No, I, the, actually, running away is is where you, they basically just have a bunch of extras out and the street somewhere on location uh but <clears throat> my experience of fortunately for me was you know something better i got to go to the special effects stage and watch them filming the effects for a couple of days for godzilla versus Mothra, and a couple of days for gmk Ugh, so cool
1: yeah we talked about that yeah. a little bit on yeah. when you talked in chicago several years ago so mm-hmm. listeners if you have not uh, if you've not picked that out yet, it's one of the earlier episodes, probably even before we hit like episode 100. But so we talked a lot with Ed during that interview about how he got on the set of Toho and how he uh, got to really see some amazing things in the 90s. Um Just kind of reining it back to the book, though. So you guys had worked together previously on commentaries and right. I'm assuming you've done some writing together.
0: Uh and not writing together but i mean steve has written a number of things that uh, i used in japanese giants Mm -hmm. okay uh and you know yeah i think that the the commentary for bfi was the first time we ever worked together and i think just because we hit that off so well uh you know when the chance came to do other commentaries
2: i think yeah that was was fun it was it was uh something that sort of i I wouldn't say fell in our laps exactly (laughs) but uh, you know, through connections that we had and people who did us a, a solid here, and right? There. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's how it happened, and um, yeah, it was a great experience, and it was an honor. I mean, it was the very. I mean, think about it. The very first one that we were invited to do is for the British Film Institute. Yeah, it's very prestigious. Absolutely.
1: And for the, and for the original, for the, <laughs> and 54. for the original.
2: And, you know, I remember sitting in the studio when we were recording that kind of thinking, you know, pinch me. You know, <laughs> this is a little bit unbelievable, but, uh, you yeah. know,
0: yeah, that me. was the old, I, I, you know, I, I don't want to tell them, but I would have paid them instead of them yeah, paying yeah. me to do it. Yeah. Uh, nice.
2: But, but so, uh, you know, out of that, um, you know, it planted this idea that, hey, you know, we, we enjoy doing this. So how can we try to do more of it? So when we would hear that, uh, other people or their companies were going to distribute, uh, films that we were, in, that we were interested in working on, we mm-hmm. would submit proposals to try to get those, those gigs. And sometimes we were successful, you know. Yeah. So it's quite kind of, successful, yeah. I would say. Yeah. And we show that, that first experience though kind of showed us how it's done. Oh, yeah. Um, and you know, one thing that I, learned out of it. There was a producer who came over from the UK Mm -hmm. to supervise that project. And she was great and did a great job. But I was watching her and saying, well, I could do that. right?" (laughs) (laughs) Basically what she did was hire us. Yeah. And then rent the recording studio and then sit there and listen to us. And if we messed something up, she would ask you to repeat it. But, you know, other than that, the content was all you know, contributed and created by us. Right. And I already had I had already worked in recording studios in an earlier phase of my life. And that's you know, I, I was comfortable doing that kind of thing. Um also this was around the time that home recording was really, you know, kind of like what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. Not to, you know, say that this isn't professional, Kyle, but um uh but you know how you can get professional results in your home studio now. And that's when this was, you know, th- this was at a time when this kind of thing was coming on. Right. So, and at the same time, um uh you know, the BFI was kind of a, a, a first-class project compared to some of the other things we've worked on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they had a budget. And right. So you could, I mean, that was recorded at Mark Grau Studios in Burbank. And that's the, the voiceover studio that does a lot of work on Disney animation films and things like that. Mm-hmm. They, actually, they record dialogue for feature films in there uh so they they clearly the bfi clearly had a a decent budget to work with but some of the other ones that we wanted to work on are microscopic in comparison (laughs) so it makes sense to do it at your house because yeah you can make it all work so you know uh, that was the one of the fun parts of it for me was to kind of um take over some of the production parts of it just to just because it's something I enjoy doing. Yeah. And yeah. It was a way of being able to make it work.
1: So. so how much of a producer or production role have you taken on since you started recording stuff for like classic media?
2: <laughs> kind of all of it. Yeah. yeah. Except for, much. yeah, I mean, there were a couple of them, depending on the budget that, um, like the Sony one had mm-hmm. a little bit more of a budget. Um, so that was recorded mm-hmm. in a professional studio. Um, the one, you know, the, the, the little story I've told about the classic media project is that um, when they initially, or Ed and I, I don't even remember how it all came about exactly, but I know that we put forth a proposal. We found, I think, um you know, Bruce Goldstein at the film forum in New York has been uh, kind of uh, one of our, um, our big boosters over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he really likes our work and, you know, we owe a lot of, uh, our success to him because he opened doors for us. He got us, uh, in one way or another, uh, the gig at the, the BFI. And I think also he put in a good word for us, uh, with classic media, if I remember correctly. Uh, but anyway, the, the classic media project was something much smaller originally than it eventually, uh, turned out to be. They originally just thought that the first two films, uh, were worth creating extras for. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, Gojida and Godzilla King of the Monsters. And I, th- you know, we talked amongst ourselves and we decided to ask them if they would think of spreading out and mm-hmm. basically doing the same treatment, but for all the films right, in that yeah. series. And they, you know, this is a number of years back, but I think they said something like, well, you know, this is all the money that you can right. spend to do this. Sure. So somehow we were able to spread it around the entire, you yeah. uh, know. Basically, you took the budget for, for two, two films, films and made it, it, um, turned it into seven. Yeah, yeah. And and the way you're able to do that is through home recording, basically. Right, yeah. And, you know, David Callet became involved. Mm-hmm. David Callet has, has his own studio, too. You know, so he was able to record no, his own right stuff, on. you know things like that you know you work with uh with 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 what you've got, so um
1: yeah, I mean,
2: I enjoyed that part of it a lot
1: cool, I do, so how did working with classic media sort of evolve into making the documentary bringing Godzilla down to size
0: <clears throat> well after we uh after a while, when we started doing some of the commentaries and delivering some of the extras that we had already put on the you know the other classic media titles uh they had the idea that uh, okay we're going to do a box set of this at some point mm-hmm. uh because not all the films had come out at that uh, as of yet and when the box set was the you know, idea was floated to us they thought well you know what kind of uh, extra content can you guys come up with and so we came up with you know i don't know probably 10 20 different ideas uh, and one of them was, well, how about a documentary film? And, and I, I don't think that either one of us really seriously thought that they were going to go ahead and, <laughs> no. and fund that. <laughs> the funny thing is that's the one they were
2: the most interested in. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> so, uh,
0: cause, you know, a lot of them we could have done, you know, with virtually no money at all. Right. And considering the way we produced, you know, some of the other extra features on the, on the disc. Uh, yeah. There would have been like pocket change, but. <clears throat> the documentary was one that really took their interest, and I I think probably at the time they must have thought that, okay, this can be an extra disc that goes into the box and really gives the box some kind of value. Yeah. So you know, but whatever their their internal thinking was, a documentary is the one that that really caught their eye, and the way they, they explained offered it it.
2: to to me, I mean, I remember that it was supposed to be the cornerstone or yeah. a cornerstone of this box. Mm-hmm. and it was going to have its own disc it was right. essentially going to be <laughs> a a standalone release within the box so we were mm-hmm. super excited about yeah. that i mean it, it it originally would would have been something uh you know much more uh, prominent and and showcased in a different way mm-hmm. but you know I, I think we've told this story a number of times there, there were things that happened between the time we started making it and the time we finished making it and then eventually, you know, the time that it was released, Um, not the least of which was the company was purchased. It was acquired by a different company and the new owners just did not have the same enthusiasm for the entire line of Godzilla mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. content. And so uh, at one point uh, after the film was in the can, nothing was happening with it. And I was, you know, resigned to the fact that it might not ever come out. Yeah. Yeah. So well, I'm glad
1: it did. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it's a bummer that it sort of got relegated to the back side of a DVD. Yeah, it's a B side. It, yeah. It's a yeah B side, <laughs> and it's sort of a B side of a of a of an indie group, if you want to think of it in those <laughs> terms, because you're yeah. you're on Rodan and War of the Gargantuas that right. set and instead it's hardly, of like one I mean, of the Godzilla it, movies. It's,
2: it's hardly mentioned on yeah. the on the packaging, and uh, yeah, it's a shame because uh, you know I think. Um, our executive producer, Lisa at the company, yeah. she, she understood what it was. Yeah. And she wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, the interesting thing about the classic media relationship is that, um, initially when we came aboard to work on things with them, there was a guy at the company who was very enthusiastic <laughs> about this stuff. He was, um, quite, uh, I, mean, I don't know if I should say he's a, he was a fan, but he sur- sure seemed like one. And, uh, this was a guy named Steve Vincent. And, uh, he really had great enthusiasm for working with us and mm-hmm. for our ideas. And as so often happens, uh, in life. <laughs> so we, we were brought aboard and we started working on things and he left. Yeah. And so. Yeah. I think you've
1: talked about that, right? Cause I then you so. just said that earlier too, that like when the new person came on, they just didn't yeah, well, have the not, same. It's the not deal. their baby, you know, yeah. they,
2: they didn't, uh, you know, Start this project and now they have to finish it for somebody else. Yeah. So that kind of thing is understandable. And plus the, the people who, who kind of supervised us after that point, uh, were, you know, just much more, um, focused on getting the project done and less so on the content and the quality of it. And so those were some of the battles we had to fight from that point forward. Which were about maintaining, uh, quality and, doing, right. you know, doing things quote unquote the right way. Our ambition was to do something on the level of like a criterion release, you know, at least, you know, to, to I the think best it of, shows for yeah, sure. Well, well, to the best of our ability, that's, that's what we were striving for. And, and we were striving against, you know, uh, the needs and, uh, um, parameters of a company that's just you know, wanting to get a product out at a certain date, unless, you know, focused on doing, doing some sort of a mm-hmm. definitive or, you know, uh, cinephile type release. Right. So, there you
1: go. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess that doesn't really surprise me too much just from looking at classic media's other mm-hmm. properties. Um, but I'm curious, you said that was one of your many ideas. Mm-hmm. Did you have more than one documentary idea or did you go into it just saying a documentary about tokusatsu? And then well, once well, they said yes, you pulled the trigger and decided to focus on Yasuki. I don't uh, remember Yasuki. exactly In-
2: how, you know, it all shook down at this point, but I know that there was a, a proposal and the documentary was kind of a, the big ticket item on mm-hmm. it. And then we had other things that were closer to what we did on the other discs, featurettes yeah. on different subjects, different people. Um, but, um, once, you know, I, I remember there was like a, we used to have conference calls with classic media because we're on the West Coast where I'm on the West Coast as in Chicago and, um, they're in New York City. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, we had a meeting with them and they, they really sparked to the idea of the documentary. And then it became, you know, a process of making, you know, creating a budget mm-hmm. and, um, putting, uh, uh, some personnel together who would, who would be able to make this with us. And, um, so that became our focus. And the, the we wrote up a proposal, which, uh, was kind of a, a detailed outline of the film. And, uh, one of the things I'm, you know, I was always most satisfied with was that the outline that we wrote, even before we shot a single, second of footage mm-hmm. largely resembles what the film turned out to be and that shows to me that we had a good idea from nice. the very beginning it was well thought yeah. through yeah for sure and uh you know we wrote the outline norman helped us a lot with it because he is a filmmaker and we uh and norman by that point i think we had pretty much agreed with you know he, he had agreed to yeah. to shoot the film for us so, mm-hmm. yeah so uh uh it was just uh one of those things where we caught lightning and yeah. and um things just sort of worked and unfortunately the breakdown occurred after you know the film was shot and and when it was basically in post-production our post-production period lasted quite a long time for a number of reasons almost a year yeah yeah, yeah. and and uh part of that was because there was no deadline you know that. At that point, the, the film was kind of in limbo. I mean, hmm. We weren't hmm. really under pressure to finish it. And I think our editor got involved in some other things and we had to kind of wrangle him back and put him back on the job at some point. But, um.
1: How did you guys decide to feature Yasuyuki in a way so much in the documentary? Mm-hmm. Cause when we were hanging out in, sh- uh, in LA earlier this year, mm-hmm. one of the things you said to me that sort of resonated was that you? Don't really want to to do a documentary about something. Oh no, actually, this was in Chicago. But mm-hmm. you you want to tell someone's story. There has to be like a tale. In well, yeah, the, I th-
2: I think that that you you know, just as a writer, I'm always looking for a human story, mm-hmm. and within a human story, I'm looking for the conflict. I'm looking for the obstacles and the. The heartbreaks and the, yeah. you know, the, yeah. all the stuff that, that people go through when they, and I always love, I mean, that's one of the things that, uh, that I loved most about, uh, oh. working on Ishiro Honda's story is because he's, it's a story of a creative person, uh, coming up against all the obstacles that one does when you're trying to create. Yeah. The obstacles of working in, in the real world. And, and he has the additional, oh. um, challenges of having gone to war and, and a lot of other things, but, um, yeah, no, you, in I'll, I'll let Ed tell this story too, but, uh, he had come to Los Angeles in 2004 for a, a retrospective at the American Cinematheque. Our friend Oki Miyano mm-hmm. kind of orchestrated, um, his appearance there, uh, and, uh, he was the, the guest of honor. Um, and, uh, the, the whole film series that week kind of showcased the, uh, the miniature work and the, the craft of, japanese style special effects so we had spent some time with him and uh, and we both had talked kind of like just theoretically about doing something on him if we had the chance and so when this um uh, opportunity came up it just seemed like a natural fit it was like somebody's story that we could build the bigger story of the genre around Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. no thanks to Oki, you know we had uh, gotten to meet Inoue and uh, afterwards, uh, several time for several consecutive visits when I would go to Japan for business, uh, I was able to go ahead and uh, visit him at his house. And, uh, I was able to see all these original artworks the or designs that he had done and people who worked with him had done, met a lot of his, uh, <clears throat> the, the staff people who worked with him, uh, and, you know, Actually, you know, developed a reasonably good relationship with, with him and, and, and his staff guys. So, you know, already at that, at that point, we would gotten a, a good amount of background on his life and, and what he had done. And, you know, we, I kind of really came to appreciate how these guys were kind of like the, the unknown people behind, uh, you know, special effects films. You know, everybody knows Tsuburaya and Honda and Yves Kube, but, You know, all the people behind them, very, very few people knew anything. Even in Japan is basically if you're talking about special effects, everybody talks Tsuburaya, but they don't talk about, you know, all the other uh, artists who were working for him. Yeah. And, you know, then when the documentary came up, you know, one of the things that the, that the both of us wanted to do is like, okay, what do we do? That isn't something that is very easily done. Like, okay, the history of Godzilla. Well, okay, that's been done a hundred times before. That's not a particularly compelling story,
1: but I in, will it, scratch the in, history yeah. of Godzilla off of my to-do list. <laughs> right, I'm just right. <laughs> right. I mean, but yeah, I mean, no, there's, I hear there's, you, I there's, understand.
0: you know, uh, any number of, of documentaries or films that, mm-hmm. that try and cover that. And it's a, it's a very simple thing to do, mm-hmm. but. You know, what's something that, you know, maybe goes a little deeper or has a little more interest? And that's where we came up with the idea of, okay, the basic concept of the film would be not about Godzilla himself, but the world in which mm-hmm. he lives. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then that was, you know, from, from that starting point, it was easy to, to take it to, the uh, you know, the next step, which is to feature Inoue and his people as kind of like the core story. Okay. Mm -hmm. Of course we give credit to Tsuburaya and as a creator of this and the kind of the the guy who directed everything, but the unknown part of the story is Inoue's story. Mm -hmm. And of course, and he had, you know, to go further, he has, you know, a very interesting personal story arc as well. So it just seemed like a really good fit. You know, I was familiar with him. So, you know, I was in a position to be able to, you know, ask for his, uh, cooperation on the film and, you know uh, fortunately that worked out really great not only did did he and his guys cooperate with us it was their idea to come up with the practical demonstration that we have as you know one of the last acts of the film underwater volcano right yeah right the underwater volcano So cool and that was that was really one of the oh man the 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 total highlights of having worked on this thing i mean i i know i i've said this before to other people but it, it sounds maybe a little silly or a little corny, but, you know, when, when we're in that workshop and wa- I'm watching all these guys working on, uh, setting up this shot and, and anyway's there, you know, the, the old master directing his guys. I mean, you could really feel, uh, you could feel the spirit of what it must have been like mm-hmm. on the sets back in the fifties and sixties mm-hmm. when these guys were at their, uh, at their peak working, uh, on all those uh, great films that we've enjoyed so much. You could really feel that energy and in in, in what it must have been like to be there. And just that we could have been in the same room as they were doing that. I mean, that was that was one of the absolute best parts of the experience of making the documentary film.
1: As a hardcore like fan, one of the things I loved about the documentary was that, you know, normally Godzilla movies are just very surface. And like we already talked about, like mm-hmm. most people just care about the movie. And it's when you get nerds like us that are like, "Oh, I want to know who made the movie," you pulling the curtain back and you're showing, generally speaking, you're mm-hmm. showing, well, here's the big four, you yeah. know, if Fukubei and uh, Subarya and Honda and uh, uh, Tanaka. Tanaka, thank you. And but what you guys did with bringing Godzilla down the side is you pulled back another curtain because you brought sure. in, in a way with yeah. all of his other guys, And it was mm-hmm. really good for me as a fan. To see that sort of like granularity go down, to see like, like, oh yes, we are seeing the people that really made this. Even mm-hmm. though, of course, like you just said, like we want to give all the props to Subaraya and the rest, sure. the, the rest of the rest of the team.
2: These are the people to whom uh those the the, the tasks of making these films, the uh, uh, all the individual tasks. I mean, it, it, within that group that are interviewed in the documentary are people who made you know, miniature mm-hmm. buildings and vehicles and uh, Mr. Aoki who demonstrates how the forests were recreated. So you, you see all the individual tasks and their different roles in the team. And what I really loved about it was how you can appreciate the dedication to the craft and the sort of culture around this type of filmmaking that evolved over a period of time and how dedicated these guys are and how mm-hmm. much they love what they did. Oh yeah, for sure. And that that's really what was so great about the demonstration uh, because it allowed them to go back to that place in their lives that they just love so much. Some of them hadn't done it in a while. And you know, like Ed said, just being in the room with them, it's like you could close your eyes and imagine yourself <laughs> yeah. on the set of, you know, one of these Toho films from, you know, forty years earlier. It really was one of the great experiences of my life to be there that day and the fact that um that they came up with the idea and that they you know we were originally going to in house mm-hmm. to do interviews but we had no inkling that that this could be a possibility so, oh, the, so cool. the fact that they mm-hmm. they suggested it and and it kind of came from there and even made it more special
1: oh think, yeah absolutely you know, yeah, yeah
2: yeah so the film you know is you know what i like about it is it tells this linear story of the genre but it also has this underlying theme of 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 a lost art mm-hmm. or an art that's that's um being lost because of changes in technology and changes in attitudes of you know it, within the industry and on the part of the, of the audience the expectations of of the audience have changed over the years and these guys know it and mm-hmm. um and they they are you know they lament it they 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 feel like they're their world is, you know, and the craft that they've practiced for so many years is inevitably changing, if not coming to an end. Yeah. Shrinking so.
1: at the very least, for sure. Mm-hmm. So, what uh, we talked earlier in the year, actually, because you guys came mm-hmm. on to our emergency broadcast in January. You mentioned that while you were filming that, you met Honda's son. Yes. And he was just kind of like there, and it was like... The connection to Honda just sort of magically appeared in a set, in a sense, right? Uh, very
0: much so. Yeah. We, <clears throat> that was when we were, uh, interviewing Akira Tsuburaya, you know, as, uh, about his father's, you know, part in the, in, in, in uh, the, the documentary. And, uh, you know, it was being conducted in his offices. And so, uh, pretty much all the workers had kind of cleared out of that section of the office and uh, we had set him up in the, in the corner. Uh, filming away, and during the middle of it, the door opens, and some guy comes in, and you know it's obvious that the one or the two of us is sitting at his desk, and you know he's very nice. He just sits at the, the next desk to next to us uh, while we were, were sitting at his desk. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't remember, <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah, that. One far. of us. That was why he sat down on the side. Oh, and I, and, you and, and you know, was like he's very nice about it. He, he didn't you know complain or anything, but. It uh, you know, wasn't me, we, yeah, we both looked, yeah, we okay <laughs> well i uh, you know what I'm glad I was the one sitting in hot desk <laughs> okay. I got to sit in his desk, but anyway, you know we're we're you but at the same time, we looked at this guy when he walked in, and i 'm sure Steve was thinking the same thing I was that right guy looks kind of familiar, I uh, wonder what it is, and you know, and then, so for whatever i don't know, we talked probably to akira for maybe fifteen twenty minutes, and mm-hmm. then when we were done. You know, he says to the interviewer who's, who's, you know, asking the questions, she said, you hey, know, by the way, you might want to talk to this guy pointing at the guy who walked in. Right. Yeah. That's Honda's son. And of course, then, you know, of course, both of us think, okay, of course, that's why you know, we recognize the guy because he has such a resemblance to his father.
2: Oh, you he know? looks just like his dad. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Really and, and,
0: and we, you know, so on the spot he's like, okay. Well, hey, we don't have any special questions prepared for this guy, but by all means, let's put him in the film. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we talked to him. I probably not more than ten minutes, but you know, at least we got yeah, to ask him a film. couple. Yeah, 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 we got to ask him a couple of topical questions, uh, and you know, he had good answer. Uh And we were able to work, you know, some some of the uh, footage from his talk into the film, which was great. But you know, after we we're all done and we're packing up, he starts talking to us because he you know spent a lot of time working in New York in his younger days back in the seventies. So he's able to speak pretty decent English to us. Uh, so, and one of, one of the things he said is, by the way, do you happen to know anybody who'd be interested in uh, doing a biography of my father? And it's kind of funny that, you know, I don't remember exactly how early in the trip it was, but, you know, as Steve and I are in the, uh, the hotel we're staying at in Tokyo and we were talking about like, gee, what kind of things can we do next? And, I think, uh, you know, this was a biography of someone like Honda was something that we had actually mentioned, not in in very any great detail or anything, but it was something that we had kind of, you know, bounced around a couple of times. So, <clears throat> of course, he says that and, you know, our response is, well, you just happen to come to the right people, you know, exactly the same thing we've been thinking of doing.
1: That's awesome.
2: So I, I mean, and of course we're sitting there shooting a movie. So we look legit,
1: you know, (laughs) (laughs) as opposed to, you know, someone just showing up on his doorstep, you know, so
2: you know, we were in the right place at the right time, doing the right kind of thing. So all of that, 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 that certainly did help a lot. And, you know, the, just the
0: other thing that, that was in our favor was that, yeah, one of his, you know, overriding factors in asking us was that he wanted to get uh, somebody from the West to do this, uh, this book. And he, he, uh, according to him, you know, the, most of the stuff that had been written about his father was basically all the same kind of thing coming from Japanese people. Everybody mm. had the same perspective. They all had the same kinds of things to say. He was looking for a different voice and, and mm. to see what, you know, what people outside of Japan really thought about his father's work.
1: Oh, that's so really that was, cool. Yeah,
0: that was what he saw in, in, in asking someone like us to do that.
1: That's
2: a really interesting, I mean, I'd love to go back and talk to him about that again. I wonder what his, uh, thinking was. I'd like to l- know a little bit more about what was behind that because he surely must have known how disrespected and, um, and how mistreated some of his father's films were in this country. I mean, they ripped up the very first one and put mm-hmm. Raymond Burr in it. And it's, and, and that happened over and over again. It's not as if. His film, his father's films were, you know, well respected over here either. Mm -hmm. So it was an interesting choice, you know. Just out of curiosity
1: though, is that something that, like, how much do they know about that in Japan? Like the, I mean, we know that because we're like super fans. Like, well, actually, Not not
0: that much as I found out. I mean, he he was certainly aware of what happened with the first Godzilla film, but uh, actually throughout the, the process of writing the book and when we were trying to track down different, uh, Copies of the film, you know I remember making uh a, a very strong point to him, especially about destroy all monsters, how you know the this international version, which is you know, pretty much the only thing that's that's uh available as an english version is is terrible, and how it 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 so drastically uh changes the tone of the film and and, and how poor it makes the film look, which you know is not the, the fault of his father's mm-hmm. work. Uh, I, I, I had mentioned about how that, that film had been changed just in, in terms of the, the dubbing. And then <clears throat> he started asking about, well, what other changes have been made to other films? And, oh, okay. and He didn't really have any idea about how bad some of the other films were, were edited. And he, I mean, in talking to him about this, he could tell that he was, he was really upset to find out that that level of change had been done to oh, you know, no. his father's work on on some <laughs> of these other films. Had
1: to be films. the bearer of bad news for uh, Shirohana's son. Yeah,
0: well, but that but that's okay because I I think you know, he was an he's an advocate for his father's work and and he made it uh, at least his mission to try and um, get Toho to start pulling some of that stuff off and 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 getting either original versions released overseas or uh, as I would kind of try and steer him. To, uh, try and resurrect, uh, the, the rights to like American international versions of these films, which I I told them how the, how superior they were compared to the stuff that Toe was pushing off, which was their international versions that are, you know, just made, you know, super cheap and not using real professional actors. So I think that there was, there might have been some benefit to that, that, you know, that, that he was hearing that from me because I was certainly advocating for trying to get a better version of his father's films out there than than the stuff that was being put out
1: it's so great that you work directly with the family to <clears throat> to make the book now i was telling steve earlier that i just listened to the mothra commentary again <clears throat> which came out again because i just listened to it i did some research on it it came out in 2009 so that's <laughs> close to 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, and you mentioned that you guys mentioned the upcoming book about the Shiro Honda. So how long have you guys been working on this book?
2: It's, it it was probably stupid to, to mention it at at that point because (laughs) we really hadn't done anything at that point. I think Ed made like a first trip to Japan. Okay. Was, Was that in 2009? No, i I
0: my first trip was uh, in September after we had done the documentary filming. I, I have my first interviews are from two thousand seven, and then two thousand seven. Wow, the first couple, and then uh, we and didn't then, even
2: have a contract to, to write no, the book at that point. But I so was... but I started something, you know? <laughs> uh,
1: and I think I think
0: I don't remember if it was eight, eight or nine that I spent you know a whole week there on mm-hmm. my own dime. Uh, for doing those, uh, the interviews. And then I think it was 2010 when the two of us right. went to do another week worth of interviews.
2: Right. I only went officially, uh, well, I've only went on one trip with him. Uh, Ed goes to Japan, uh, pretty regularly, mm-hmm. uh, as part of his business and, uh, is able or was able yeah. to incorporate some research work on a lot of those yeah. trips, but not so for me. So, uh, I went with Ed in 2010. Specifically on a trip where that's all we were yeah, doing, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it was pretty intensive, and we met with a lot of people, uh, and uh, got a lot of really good interviews and research done. That was one of the great things I've ever done. It was so much fun and yeah. so rewarding. Yeah.
0: But you know, I, I think in in mentioning the book when we did it was 2009. Uh-huh. <clears throat> at that time, you know, it was our intention. To try and get the book out for the hundredth anniversary of his birth, which would have been two thousand eleven. So uh, I mean, at that time, okay, yeah. at that time, that was at least that was the kind of goal that we had in mind. But you know, yeah, honestly speaking, I, it impossible. wasn't it wasn't realistic not not to do what we eventually wind up doing, which was to try and see all of his films and especially to see them and then understand them by discussing right. them with right, uh, yeah. the granddaughter uh, with Yuko and. You know, just there. There's just so much translation work to be done as well. My wife, bless her heart, right. uh, she spent a good part of a year and a half to two years uh, helping me translate uh, all sorts of different interviews and uh, a couple of books, uh, just so we could get more background information and and a lot of interesting quotes, things that gave us clues on what to ask other people about, and yeah, all that just takes a tremendous amount of time. And, yeah, yeah, totally. And, yeah, especially tracking down films was very difficult. Even the family was having a very difficult time to find any kind of copy of of some of his works.
2: Oh, they kept trickling in over time. Yeah. We had a, a research assistant um, named Shinsuke Nakajima who uh, the family introduced us to, and he was... um uh well he he's a writer and he I think he had written for Uchusen and some other publications. Yeah, and okay. Also uh authored or co-authored some books and he had interviewed Mr. Honda back in the day uh on several occasions. So he was uh he had a lot of uh and, and you know, he's not just a writer on this genre, he's knowledgeable about uh film in a broader sense too. Yeah. So we could ask him all kinds of questions and a lot of his um the discussions with him would lead us down uh, a path to to learn other things and he he was great i mean one of my favorite memories of that trip in 2010 is just riding in a car with him and talking you know in the back seat about well i think that's when we started having a conversation about half human yeah. and why it has been absent for so long and that um you know led us down the path of figuring out the whole mystery of of what happened to the film but also understanding that it's not a singular case. It's a, it's one of many films and television shows that have met this kind of a fate. It's sort of a voluntary, um, embargo on the part of mm-hmm. the, the film studio or the broadcasting company or the publisher. There's a whole, uh, range of content that's been taken off the market because of, uh, potential corporate embarrassment.
1: Right. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah.
2: So, okay. so that was really interesting to find some clues there anyway but he he was a great asset to us in a number of ways um so you know when you write a biography of somebody i mean this is a person whose life spans you know 80 plus years uh and then you're also talking about somebody who is removed from you by virtue of culture and language and time Mm -hmm. uh and somebody who's you know we don't have an opportunity to speak with directly so you're you're getting a lot of your your source material from it's secondary material mm-hmm. or, you know, the primary material is interviews, but you're also working with, uh, translations of documents and books and oh, yeah. magazine articles. We were able to go to, uh, Honda's archives at Nichi Dai and pull things like you know, old newspaper articles, interviews with him dating back to as far as the Blue Pearl yeah. in 1951. Uh, but, um, and then the, there's secondary, material that you, uh, that you consult for, you know, context. Mm-hmm. You know, we would take all of the things that happened in his life and then look at, you know, uh, works of nonfiction, history, not only film history, but, you know, the history of Japan, the history right. of the oh, world. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the post-war Japanese history is rich and interesting. And, and we, the whole narrative of Honda's life, we try to put it into context. You know, that he didn't, you know, live and make these films in a vacuum. The films very much reflect what's going on in, in Japan and in the world, uh, at that time. So we tried to, to really, you know, sh- and that, and that's a way of showing you what he cared about, what he was passionate about, what, ma- what mattered to him as a filmmaker mm-hmm. and as an artist. Mm-hmm. You know, these things percolate up into the films, even in the science fiction films, probably more so in the dramatic films. Okay. Sometimes, cause there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's more room for substance in those. Uh, by and large, but, uh, so the, there's so many things. I think what you're getting at, or the the bigger question that you're asking without asking it is, why the hell did it take so long? <laughs> <laughs> yes, right? No, not actually,
1: but I mean, go for it anyway. <laughs> no, 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 no it, it takes so
2: long because it's not, uh, one task that you're performing. It's a, it, it, I liken it to, you know, you're, 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 col- and you collect massive amounts of information. Yes. Much more than you could ever use or want to use because a lot of it is, you know, repetitious,
1: but, right. but
2: also you have to vet this information. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know? <laughs> yes. And, and especially
1: and, for what you guys did. We, and I mean, and, this is a re- sure. reputable company putting out your book. Sure, sure, sure. Not, no, no. This and, is not a self-published kind of thing.
2: No, no. And, and we felt, uh, you know, uh, an obligation to make sure that the words we put on paper were things that we could back up. Mm-hmm um but for instance if someone tells you um that honda you know uh went off to or you know was drafted again or or he had to return to service and he was supposed to go to the Philippines but he his he didn't make it and his platoon was shipped off to China instead and uh, the the boat that he was supposed to arrive at the Philippines. You know, th- there are things you can go. There are there are documented sources that you can go to. There are there are books written about the history of the Japanese military, for mm-hmm. instance, where you can take what someone tells you and match it up to events on a timeline and and put the pieces of the puzzle right, together yeah, yeah. and understand that oh, the first division actually was headed for the Philippines. And the battle of Leyte Gulf and, and they, most of them died there. Right. And if Honda hadn't missed that boat, he likely would have died there too. That's one of the biggest naval battles in history. So those are the kinds of things that, that you know, this is a big puzzle sometimes that you're trying to put together.
1: Did you guys have like a CSI room where all the, right. the red <laughs> threads were tied to different photos and interviews?
2: No. Damn. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, one of the things that Ed would get frustrated with me is like, why the hell is it taking so long? Or why isn't it something like, you know, I, he didn't see it on paper. I large, I'm very like conceptual and I organize mass, I can organize massive amounts of, of material in my head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so sometimes I will uh, basically write something in my mind. Okay. And when it finally comes out on the page, it's pretty much organized as, you know, the way I want. It to be. And so it's, it's in a state where it's not a final draft at that point, but it's,
1: the, it's pretty close. The brain draft. You've it's, got a brain, brain draft. The brain draft is, right? yeah.
2: So you know, sometimes he would get pissed off at me because <laughs> it wasn't I'm on not. paper yet. No, I no, He's, he's very, p- he's a good, he, he, he's very, very easy to work with. But I know and you're a patient on. man. He's a, a patient that? man.
1: <laughs> well, uh, so actually the question I was going to sort of move to is we know Honda's works from the monster stuff, yeah. obviously the sci-fi right. stuff, all that tokusatsu awesomeness. But what I'm curious is, uh, if you were to make a pie chart, I don't know mm-hmm. what is wrong with me. I keep referencing charts and graphs in this podcast over the past couple of months. I so. like pie. Sure. <laughs> I love pie. So let's do a pie. So let's say. All of Honda's films are the pie. What kind of percentage or slice of that pie is just the tokusatsu stuff compared to everything else he did? The crime dramas, the documentaries, all it's that stuff. It's pretty well split. Um, really? Yeah. It's maybe like 45, 55. Yeah, something it's like okay. It's,
2: it's pretty evenly divided. Yeah, because
1: we've heard over the years that Honda was sort of shoehorned into being a special effects not a special yeah. effects director, but a special effects pictures mm-hmm. director. Mm-hmm. And I was just kind of, I'm interested in his other films. Obviously I've seen all his tokusatsu stuff. So right. I'm, I know we don't have the ability to see any of that stuff now legitimately. Mm-hmm. Um So I'm kind of like wondering how, how much I have to go before I could say I've seen like a good grip of Honda's stuff, but it's, you know,
2: well, one little plug I'll put out there. Uh, there's a, what is this? Uh, channel called tku tv or toku tv
1: before you go down that route (laughs) you're gonna cut it out i'm just gonna say that's not (laughs) tku tv is just a a dude like me okay so if i wanted to if i grabbed one of my blu-rays and i started facebook live streaming it that's i'm not trying to belittle what they do because i actually really like what the tku guys do okay
2: well you're 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 already crapping all over
1: this. <laughs> I'm I'm pooping all You're over pooping it. it. All I was going
2: to say is uh they uh, have made available and I don't know what the original source mm-hmm. of this is, but there exists a uh subtitled version of Farewell Rabal. Mm-hmm. And I don't know who owns it if anyone, but it's out there and um and I can't vouch for how good or accurate the subtitles right. are, but uh, it's there if anyone's interested in, in, uh, finding it. And it is the, um, the first salvo in,
1: in the, uh, effort.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's illegitimate or it's not, uh, um, commercially, uh, available yet. But, um, uh, it's our hope that, you know, by writing this book and by talking about th- his other films and by encouraging people to seek them out that eventually, uh, somebody's going to start putting one or more of these films out uh for release in the United States and in the West. And I think with Filmstruck right, uh, being yeah. out there now, I think that's a good uh possibility. Uh and now that uh Janice and Criterion have just apparently acquired all these Toho science fiction films mm-hmm. from the show up period. Wow. I mean this this is a this is a a real opportunity and I hope that they'll uh you know because they've got already in their streaming service through Filmstruck they're already making available films that i never would have thought would be available in this country uh if you've got Filmstruck you can go on there and see things like um uh Iron Finger mm-hmm. which is a Jun Fukuda spy picture from the 60s
1: yeah yeah
2: and uh the the sequel is uh, uh i think they've got it under the international title which is Golden Eyes Um, these are things that I never would have thought we'd be able to see with subtitles. So if that's any indication as to what might be coming in the future, I think there's at least a chance that Honda could be part of that mix. Yeah.
0: And, and with the book, you know, we're hoping that the book does, you know, does raise uh, people's awareness of Honda. Yeah. The fact that there is a whole lot more to this guy than just science fiction. That would be awesome. So if, if that can in some way contribute to the, eventual release of some of his films here that's you know that, yeah. that that'll be a, a great achievement for us for you know for what the book can do yeah, yeah it
1: seems to me like it's a it's an easy call it would be an easy call for criterion to do i was actually mm-hmm. just noticing that criterion had one of those um 50 percent off sales at yeah. barnes and noble recently so i was yeah. pouring through the criterion website With the uh, country set to Japan just to see what they had. And I was really shocked. They had so many Japanese films that they've released over the years, including some of the ones you mentioned. So its I don't think it would be a stretch for them to put out some Honda stuff, especially if they did it as one of those box sets where you could buy like several of Honda's films in one go. That'd be awesome.
2: Or maybe one of those Eclipse, uh, releases that might work. Yeah. We don't know what, you know, what, what the costs are or anything like that. So, I mean, obviously it's a business decision by and large. Sure, um, yeah. Um, but if, if some of the Honda pictures are included in some package that they acquired at at some point in the future, um, you know, that would be great. Uh, I could, uh, I mean, uh, my, goal or my my, that what i would really hope for is that some of his earliest films would would be released uh something like the blue pearl his very first feature film it's a wonderful film uh and i i always thought it would have been a great idea if somehow it could have been released as a secondary feature with uh, godzilla when the criterion collection put that out a few years ago Mm -hmm. only because the two films have a, a great deal in common uh they're both shot uh in a similar or uh, in much around not ex- exactly the same location but the same region mm-hmm, so you mm-hmm. can see some similar geographical uh, oh, yeah, features yeah. uh the the blue pearl takes place in uh, also in Isheishima, which is where the Odo island uh, footage was shot and um it, it takes place in a, a small village that is uh, uh the local economy is uh, supported by pearl diving and so it has some wonderful underwater photography but the story is really just a great piece of, uh, post-war Japanese life, uh, set at the tail end of the occupation. It has a lot of c- common themes to Japanese films at that time and some really great, uh, Honda-isms, for lack of a better word. Okay. I mean, it ends in a similar way to how Godzilla ends. I think there's, there are parallels between the two films and, It'd be a nice double bill. Okay. Uh, I yeah. would have loved it if we could have, you know, we're doing a number of events now to get out and get uh, the word out about the book and to to promote it and to talk about Honda and his work. And we've been doing some screening events. And um I mean, if it were at all possible, I would have tried to sh- have shown that film at some point. It's just not available right now but maybe in the future.
1: Hopefully in the future. Yeah. So how did Honda evolve as a filmmaker from, I mean, his earliest stuff was in the forties, right? 30s.
2: Well, his first no. feature film is 51. Okay.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's right. Cause okay. So truth be told, I have not read the book. This is for the listeners. Steve already knows this. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. You can act like I didn't tell you this earlier, but the <laughs> pisk, pisk. you're I- going
2: to get a, poor grade on your test.
1: This particular episode is going to get a negative rating. <laughs> anyway, the thing I was going to ask is uh because I have not gone through the whole book to read it, like did how did he evolve as a filmmaker from his earliest stuff to I guess 1975?
2: That's a big question. Uh <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you know, he came up uh, as uh you know, through the ranks of the assistant directors at Toho Studios. Uh, as you know, he was, um, he apprenticed under Kajiro Yamamoto, uh, alongside Akira Kurosawa. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, one of the things the, the book talks about is how the different apprentices of Yamamoto went in their different directions. Uh, Kurosawa, of course, being Kurosawa, uh, struck out on his own and eventually took a very independent path, both creatively and uh, business-wise. Mm-hmm. Honda was much more in the mold of someone like Yamamoto, Yamamoto who enjoyed making films in all kinds of different genres. Uh, Honda just loved film through and through. He he enjoyed tackling almost any challenge. So um he, the first couple of films that he was assigned to do were documentary films, and that was primarily because Toho was using documentaries in the late 40s, early 50s as sort of a proving ground for Mm -hmm. assistant directors. This was kind of Mm -hmm. like what they would assign you to do before you were given a feature film project. Honda became a feature film director for the first time in 51, and that film is very much uh, a product of its time. It's a film set at the tail end of The Occupation, and uh, it it's interesting because the first phase of his career right up through godzilla from like 51 to 54 all those films are pretty downbeat yeah. uh the 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 blue pearl is a romantic tragedy mm-hmm. it's um uh, about a young woman who falls in love with a man from tokyo who moves to her little uh pearl diving village on the coastline of beautiful coastline area of japan uh and this young gentleman from tokyo played by uh yo ikebe um brings with him, uh, more westernized, more modern values. And so it creates this sort of culture clash in the village. And at the same time, this, um, uh, another character also back from Tokyo, one of the other pearl dry- divers who's gone away and lived in Tokyo, lived in the city, become more modern, wears modern clothes and makeup. She comes back. Uh, to the village back home and she just wreaks havoc on the town with her new attitudes. And uh, she basically tries to break up this relationship between the two main characters, the main lovers. Anyway, the whole thing ends rather badly. And, um and then subsequent to that, he made a film called the skin of the South, which uh, is about some scientists who are sent to uh Southern or uh, it's Kyushu, isn't it? Where yeah. they're, they're doing uh, geological research, about some landslides there and mm-hmm. uh that's a really interesting film that also ends rather somewhat tragically uh, there's some uh there's a really wonderful film that he made around this time called adolescence part two which is actually a sequel to a film made by another director but uh it's an independent story i guess it's a semi-sequel it was a, a part two in a in a thematic series, but I, and I don't mm. think it's a direct sequel, but no. it's a okay. really wonderful film. It's about teenagers living in a kind of secluded, um, uh, mountain town and they're, it's all, all about the culture clash of that time period, the young people kind of adopting these new, more Western, more, uh, more liberal values and coming into clash with their, their parents and their teachers uh that's a i'm not doing it just as it's really a nice film Mm. anyway uh but these these early films are more uh, straight up dramatic uh you don't see the comedy that you see in these later films okay uh there's no music um a lot of the elements in the in the kaiju films that we like the most you know the ones from the 60s especially those films have you know tend to have musical numbers in them and comedy and you know, they're very, they can be kind of lighthearted. Mm-hmm. Those are things that he started to introduce into his dramatic films in the second half of the fifties. Okay. As, you know, mm-hmm. the, the national mood started to improve and things weren't as dire and dour. Um, oh, yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So his films are kind of, you know, his films evolve. You asked how he evolved as a filmmaker yeah. and that's kind of how I got on this, this, uh, this track. Uh, his films evolve with the sort of national psyche and the evolution of the, the national mood and uh things like mothra uh definitely that's the start of a new decade and things are are improving quite a bit and uh the economy is improving and there's more money being spent on you know things like you know leisure activities and uh there's more comedy in films and um uh king kong versus godzilla of course is a, of course, it's, yeah. a it's a it was a big hit but it was also it incorporates a lot of elements of the com- comedic films that were really popular at that time. Boy, I just watched something last night to, to go off on a tangent. I watched one of those 30 for 30 documentaries about Ric Flair. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but Ric Flair is, you know, this great theatrical professional wrestler. And King Kong versus Godzilla was in some ways uh, influenced by the popularity of professional wrestling okay. in Japan. At that point, um people like Freddie Blassie were going over and touring Japan and doing these wrestling shows on live television. And one of the things that, uh, was really s- sort of notorious on, you know, con- Honda has said many times that that film was essentially a satire of the, um, the sort of, uh, uh, lowbrow programming that was, uh, really prevalent on television at that time. Television kind of exploded in the late fifties, early sixties, and mm-hmm. they were just scrambling to come up with enough programming to fill the airtime. And a lot of the stuff that, that was produced at that time, and it was really, um, uh, popular were these sort of, uh, I don't know if they would call them reality shows, but there were things where people would play pranks on one another and do kinds of, <laughs> really? yeah, oh yeah, yeah, there was a show where they would, it was like scandal, it created like quite a stir, like where they would have television cameras and a baseball game and they would send, you know, like at the baseball games there, people, the, the fans of different teams sit on different sides of the stadium. Okay. And they would send a guy from who was wearing the, you know, the, 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 paraphernalia of it. <laughs> one team to the other side to, to cause a ruckus and they would film it and stuff. Anyway, one of the things that happened was, um, during one of these tours where Freddie Blassie was, uh, uh, wrestling on live television. I didn't really know this until Eric Hominick kind of explained it to me. And then I was watching this Ric Flair documentary. You see these guys. Ric Flair is like in his late sixties now and he's got scar tissue all over his forehead. And I don't, I don't know nothing. I, I know nothing about wrestling. I don't know nothing. I know nothing about wrestling. And the scar tissue is all from the cutting that they do. They cut their, they slice their foreheads or they used to do this with razor blades. And then a guy would pretend to, to like bite them or I don't know. Inflict them. some sort of, inflict bloody some damage. sort of, and then you see these photographs in the wrestling magazines and yeah. where blood is just streaming across their faces. Well, apparently Freddie Blassie did this or someone did it to Freddie Blassie on live japanese television i can't remember if he was the victim or the perpetrator but the blood just went streaming and the 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 i guess it was just disgusting to, <laughs> anyway the the story was i don't know how true this is that that some elderly viewers watching this at home like died of shock <laughs> <laughs> so anyway uh that that film is again something that's reflective of its time mm-hmm. uh even in, in something like atragon this, the story of yeah. Jinguji is, is reflective of something that was actually happening. Yeah, I'm right. there were the, 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 Japanese war stragglers that started to come home. You know, uh, they, some of these people were still being discovered decades after the war. They were holed out on these South Pacific outposts, still wearing their military fatigues and refusing to accept or believe that the war had ended and that Japan had surrendered. That character is based on real stories of real mm-hmm. people. So uh his films evolve with the the, the evolution of the times and with the, the the things that were going on in Japan how he got to a place where he was making something like Terror of Mechagodzilla well i mean that that's a good question i i, I actually i like i like the way ed explains that story but um that that's quite a mystery you know why did he even make that film uh,
0: even even his son you know when we asked him directly he he said you know he has really no idea why he would have accepted that because he he'd already reti- you know, accepted his fate that he wasn't going to be directing any longer he retired in uh 1970 and outside of you know working on some uh tv shows in the ensuing years you know out of respect for the Tsuburaya family who were asking him to help with uh, some of the the tv shows that they were doing and and help make them as as kind of models for uh the 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 filmmakers who were coming after him uh you know he really wasn't uh, thinking of doing anything in in film and yet here comes you know, 1975 and Terror Godzilla*, and no matter how many times they had been asking him over previous years you know he wasn't interested in going back but suddenly for some reason he decided to make one more film and it's it's you know he never expressed anything in writing as to why he would have mm-hmm. accepted that Hmm. And the people around him, you know, the family, nobody really can understand why he did that. But he did do it one more time.
1: Well, I want the reason to be because they drove a dump truck full of yen up to his house. But no, I'm sure that's not the reason Hard. that would that would never <laughs> especially, happen, especially yeah. in 1975. But uh, what would you guys say is like I know uh, we've talked about your favorite sort of Honda film and we've talked about Farewell Rabal and The Blue Pearl. What are some of the other films that you guys really, in your research, you're like, wow, that was really awesome. Maybe something from uh, a little bit later, maybe not Kaiju specific, obviously.
0: Well, uh, one of the, one of them that I always talk about that I like a lot is, is called Song for a Bride, which is, it's a great ensemble piece, a uh, nice, light, heartwarming comedy uh, about three sisters uh, who are, you know, have a, a father who's kind of like this, I mean, really oddball busybody kind of guy uh it's hard to describe what it is that uh you know you, you can you know point to to say oh yeah this is the, the part of the film i like it's just you know you have these very nicely drawn characters uh all likable people and you know they get into kind of amusing situations nothing's really there's no slapstick or any you know overt you know, knee slapping comedy it's just Nice character-driven comedy, written uh, written in a very, you know, simple and interesting style, and and Honda has a very light touch with it, and he shows a real sharp sense of uh, of humor. That that the, the, that film in particular, I find really amusing, and of course, you know, because all of us are coming from the uh, the camp of. Of science fiction, you know, sure, yeah, you, know, you yeah. look, you look at, you look at this film and it's just populated with all the, the, the actors that we're familiar with. You have Koizumi and, and Tsuchiya and Kumi Mizuno and Sahara and down the line. It's, it, it's, it's just a, a great overall, you know, nice little film, the kind of film that uh, I, I, you know, think back to some of the interviews and I, that I was just looking at uh, reviewing some of the, the stuff that we had Gotten from some of our interview subjects, and you go back to what uh, hisao kurosawa, you know, uh, Akira's son said, and he said, you know, if I was a producer at that time, you know, that's you know, these kind of heartwarming family comedies. That's the kind of thing that he would have had Honda do, rather than directing him in the the vein of science fiction, mm-hmm. because he
2: felt that he could really been a, a standout in the field like that. And he did a lot of them. It's not as if he didn't make those films. It's just that uh, at a certain point the business started to change yeah. and uh and there wasn't room to do that kind of work anymore as ed said one of the the real fun things about watching these other films is to see how the cast members that we that we know and and love so much from the science fiction films how they kind of had a chance to just to, to stretch out a little bit more in some yeah. of these other films. I mean, I really wish I'd been able to see, I, I interviewed Hiroshi Koizumi a number of times over the years, but I had a really good interview with him in 1999 when he came to New York and mm-hmm. I was, I was living there and there was a convention there and, um, he was one of the featured guests and I got a chance to sit after it was over with him on a rooftop in New York <laughs> at a, at a hotel. It was wonderful and we sat there and we had, to... I don't know, about two hours. But if I had seen some of these films mm. back then, I could have asked him some questions specifically about working with Honda that would have been a little bit more substantial. Mm, than, right, because, yeah. you know, the, the, the science fiction films don't give these actors much to do. And so oftentimes you'll go and ask them questions about working in something like Mothra versus Godzilla. Well, it's a great film for us. But for the actors, there's not much to do, and how many totally, di- yeah. how many days did he really work on that film? You know, he's not. Yeah. It, it shouldn't surprise us when they don't remember too much about no, working totally, on yeah. like this. But there's a film. I mean, Hiroshi Koizumi is a really pretty good actor, and, and yeah. it was sort of revelatory to see him in some of these other films. I mean, I'd seen him in films by other directors. He he worked with uh, <laughs> if if you're familiar familiar with Mikio Naruse, he was a you know. Uh, w- much celebrated director, uh, uh, right up there with Kurosawa. There's a film that, uh, Koizumi stars in by Mikio, Na- Mikio Narusei called Late Chrysanthemums. And if I'm not mistaken, it was made around 1955, 56 and, uh, maybe 54. But in any case, um, there are some direct parallels between that film and a film that Honda made around the same time. Koizumi, uh, in, in Lake Chrysanthemums plays the son of a, uh, retired geisha. Hmm. And he, he's really like, uh, quite a jerk in this film, but it's a great character. He plays the, sort of the ingrate son, the, uh, who's, uh, he's not helping to support his mother in any way. He's not married. He's actually got a sugar mama, an older woman who's kind of supporting him. And he's sort of defiant and, um, just sort of flaunts it. And isn't really, um, respectful to his mother at all. In, uh, there's a film, uh, from, uh, I believe 1955 by Honda called Mother and Son. Sometimes you'll see it listed as Oen-san because the main character's name is Oen. And Oen is played by, uh, Yaiko Mizutani, who's an actress, uh, whose career went all the way back to the silent film era. Uh, she plays this, the title character, Oen, who, uh, works at the, at the Sujiki fish market. And, um, she runs a fish stand there. I think she's a widow and her son is played by Hiroshi Koizumi, hmm. uh, who is not a jerk in this film, but his character is basically, um, uh, moving, be- moving away from his mother. He lives with his mother, but he's met a, a woman and he wants to get married and he's basically, Leaving his mother behind for a life of his own, and right? Yeah, uh, and so the mother feels very um, deserted and depressed, and the whole uh, experience of this is very heartbreaking to her. And the movie is just a wonderful piece of of all the things that they both go through, because the son goes through a period of feeling very guilty about this, okay. and at one point he essentially gives up on his relationship and uh, and tries to make his mother happy, which makes him miserable. And then there are thi- There are people in the mother's life, like an old ex-lover who comes back and tries to restart their relationship years later. And she's at a point in her life where she can't go back. But she, she sort of resigned herself to being miserable. Hmm. And the movie has this sort of ennui hanging over it. And it's very, in some ways, similar to a, a Narusei film, if you're familiar with those. Naruse made films about women and about the plight of women in post-war Tokyo. Uh, and, uh, Honda had a similar sensitivity about him. And, uh, there's a quote in the book, uh, from producer Tanaka where, where he basically says, um, paraphrasing, if I hadn't steered Honda in the direction of science fiction, he probably would have become a director more like Naruse, mm. which means a couple of things. It means, uh, number one, he, he felt that Honda had in him the talent to be somebody, uh, you know, a director on that level. Uh, if he had only been given more of a chance to do that. And also it's a recognition of Honda's, uh, humanistic and, uh, qualities and his sensitivity as a director to stories about women, uh, which he briefly in the period after Godzilla, uh, focused on in a number of different films. So yeah, there's a lot of rich material to, to find. Uh, we were very fortunate to be able to not only see these films, but to, uh, you know, working with Yuko Honda, who has a really strong interest in her grandfather's work and, and you know, uh, preserving his legacy, uh, we were able to kind of sit down and talk about the films and kind of uh, understand more and learn more about where he was coming from during these different phases of his career. So that was fascinating. Stuff. Yeah, she filled
0: in a lot of the gaps that we had, uh, in, not only in terms of the... The background and, and, and how Japanese uh, culture, you know, how some of these things fit into Japanese culture. She helped translate different sections of some films for us where, mm-hmm. where they were very dense and very difficult for us to comprehend. Uh, you know, that, that kind of thing was just in, uh, totally invaluable to us. And, and that was what helped make all these other films so enjoyable. I mean, it, it wasn't just that we physically saw them. We got a chance to actually you know, enhance our experience and understand them a little better and especially get some background on on why certain things were done in these films or what was going on, you know, in his life or in the world at the time that these films were made.
2: She There's a reason why her name is on the, the cover yeah. of the book. Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, it's because she was an equal partner in this very project. Very much, very much. So we're very fortunate to have met her mm-hmm. and that she was able and willing to work with us to the extent yeah. that she did. Uh, I mean, it, you don't often have a partner like that. And, and her personal stake, I think, just compelled her to work that much harder. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like somebody, you, you know, I've worked, with, and Ed has also, uh, we worked with translators on different projects. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, I've had really positive experiences, but sometimes you work with someone who's, you basically hired, you know, and they're doing a job. Mm-hmm. She had a personal stake in this. Like oh, she, yeah, absolutely. She grew up in Honda's house, you know, as a as a small child. She spent a great deal of time with her grandfather, so this was personal. Yeah, and she was learning things about him along the way yeah. too, which was oh, really, that's super cool too. Really, oh, yeah. really wonderful yeah. experience to share with her. Yeah.
1: Well, I've only made it a handful of pages into the book, but I feel like I've learned a million more things about Honda that I that I knew before I even cracked it open. In sort of closing this out, I want to tell people that if they want to go to any of the events that you guys are holding, book signings, screenings, etc., they should go to the Facebook page, which I'll have a link to in the show notes. Mm-hmm. So you can definitely go like and follow the Ashiro Honda, well, I'll just say the book page. And then is there anything else Honda related that you guys want to share? Like maybe a personal anecdote from the research that you guys did?
0: I, I always like to tell this kind of like ironic story of uh, how, you know, I, I I met Honda a couple of times just briefly, but, you know, it's not like I was his great friend or I, I had a chance to really discuss much with him because mm-hmm. of the circumstances under which I met him at the time were, were the kind of thing where it actually was just kind of like a surprise. And, and of course I didn't have any real <clears throat> good way to communicate with him, unfortunately. But the first time that I met him was in 1979 when, uh, it was my first visit to Japan and a friend of mine arranged for us to visit Toho. And, you know, that was, of course, you know, uh, a, a day of memories for the ages. But as we were walking down the main path, uh, out towards main gate, uh, we were walking past this one building and the guy who was Showing us around, his name is Hiroshi Takeuchi, and you know, he's written you know, any number of books about uh, Japanese science fiction films, and he's a very famous, uh, scholar about these kinds of films. One of, uh, Nakajima's friends, in fact. And, you know, so he, you know, we're walking down the path, and we pass by this one building, and he says, Oh, you know, chatamate, wait a minute. <laughs> and he goes into the building, and he walks out, and, you know, right behind him, here, here's a Shiro Honda. You know, it's obvious who it is. Even if I could have spoken Japanese, I'm sure I couldn't have said a single word because you're so starstruck when he's like, oh, it's like, it's, it's Honda, right? It's standing right in front of me. Like, how, how could this be possible? <laughs> and so, you know, you shake his hand and you tell him, you know, it's, it's an honor to meet you. You tell him in English because you can't speak Japanese. And, and we get a picture with him and, and I happen to have a, an extra copy of my old Japanese giants number five, the, the, the ancient history, you know, version. And and we gave him a copy of that. And so it was a really wonderful experience. And so, you know, then we went on our way and you know, the day was over and and that was just, you know, one one more memory to top off a fantastic day. When we started working on the book and and one of the things I got involved with was the, the Honda website. And uh, so, you know, helping, you know, with, with the aid of Yuko and also with my wife, we were translating a, a number of the pages, including all the messages from the staff of the Honda website in Japan and Takuchi was one of the staff members and so when I got to his essay I started reading it and I'm thinking oh wait a minute because he's uh, he's in in part of his essay he starts talking about and in 70, 1979 I was showing these foreigners around Toho <laughs> and I remember uh you know I I knew that the Honda was inside uh, the office over here Talking with Kurosawa about how to make Kagemusha. So I went in and got him out and introduced him and it made me think like, Oh my God. Not only was Honda there it was Kurosawa was there too. <laughs> Why didn't he bring this guy out to see me? I, I mean, it could have got two, two for one at that time. I, 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 I was like a hundred feet from Akira Kurosawa and I didn't even know it.
2: That is really one of those glass-half-empty, half, empty, yeah.
0: half <laughs> sure right? situations. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He was probably like, oh, this guy just likes Godzilla. I don't uh, need yeah. to. Yeah, still, well, yeah, and I'm sure that's exactly what it was. Yeah.
2: But
0: it, it was just so amazing that that moment in time came back, you know, at, at, during the early stages of, that's awesome, of, of working on, on the book, which, you know, again, doing the website was was all part of the the, the same thing. <laughs> it was, that wasn't really one of those ironic amazing stories <laughs> that's pretty awesome
2: <laughs> my favorite uh experience i mean there are so many that were memorable but during that trip in 2010 uh we spent uh, a good number of hours in the home mm. of ishiro honda and yes. his widow kimi honda and uh, to if you had ever told me that i would be in, in that <laughs> home i would have never believed you so to be there was, um, a little bit overwhelming at first, but once I got past the emotional part of that, um, you know, the, the interviews and, and the conversations that we had around the table there with Kimi Honda and, uh, and Koji Kajita, the assistant director who worked with Honda for so many years. Those were really wonderful conversations. I mean, they didn't even really feel like interviews, even though that's what mm-hmm. they were. I mean, they were free flowing. Both of them were very, very giving in, in in terms of their time, in terms of their trust to us. Uh, it was a really wonderful experience and, and the material that came out of those conversations was really rich. But, um, Mm -hmm. beyond that part of the experience, and and I just love like little memories of sitting around because some, we would take a break in the, the conversation. We're just eating those, uh, those satsuma oranges, you know, there was a big box of them there yeah. and there, things like that. Really simple, uh, parts of the experience. But the thing that came out of that also is that I was looking around this house and just kind of, um, <clears throat> you know, noticing that other than a little Godzilla statue in the, um, in the entryway, there really wasn't anything indicative of who lived here. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's a sequence in, um, in the book, uh, King of Comedy by Sean Levy, which is uh, a book about a uh, biography of Jerry Lewis. Uh, and actually Stuart Galbraith suggested this to me, but it was, it's a great idea. Um, he, he's the one who, who reminded me of that part of that Jerry Lewis book, which is a great book about Jerry. It's just a great celebrity or, or, you know, uh, entertainment biography, um, to begin with, but it has a, a portion of the book where the writer visited Lewis in his home and it kind of tracks through these different rooms and mentions all the memorabilia, all the, all the things that Lewis had put on the walls and on the, you know, on tops of dressers and other things that basically to create a shrine to himself. Right. Yeah. And this home was the opposite. And, uh, what we asked Yuko to do because she spent so much time there as a child was to, Describe what the house was like when Honda lived there in his retirement period in the, in the mid 1970s. So there's a sequence in the book that's kind of like the sequence in the Jerry Lewis book, but it's, <laughs> it's done for a, a different reason. It's, it's, well, it's a similar reason. It's to reveal part of Honda's character, right, but yeah. it re- it's revealed in, through the fact that there's almost nothing in the house that is meant to to uh, you know stroke his own ego you know there was very little in the house even when he lived there that was a reminder Mm -hmm. of the fact that he was a director much less the director of this famous film franchise and that really speaks to who he was because he didn't make these films for himself he made them for the audience he didn't make them to please himself as much as he did to please the audience you know and and he was very much a a populist and a and an entertainment filmmaker and he he you know he didn't apologize for that he 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 was uh very much uh in tune to he, he felt a sort of a communion mm-hmm. with the audience and i i really think you can feel that through his films and um uh, mm-hmm. uh i mean he made the films for us <laughs> and right, i think yeah, that's right. one of the reasons why they lasted so long and they continue to to find new generations of of you know fans All over the world. I mean, we say it in the book, but he was, this is one of the great ironies of his career, is that he was, during his time, the most internationally commercially successful filmmaker out of Japan. Much more so than someone like Kurosawa. And again, it's an apples and oranges comparison, but his films played in far more cinemas, in far more parts of the world, and reached far more people than anybody else out of Japan at that time. And he never got credit for it. Yeah. And in all
0: honesty, he's really the one that opened the the door for Japanese films to the Western world. Mm. If, if it wasn't mm-hmm. for Godzilla coming to this country and being such a big success, uh you know, probably Japanese fin- cinema wouldn't have really gotten much play in in the West for many many years. But when the that film was successful, it, the Western world took note and and they said, "Hey, this this country is producing stuff that we can use for." You know exploiting and uh, releasing in our area and and so you know the world started to take note of Japanese film as a result,
2: and yet he never got credit for it and so that's that's one of the main reasons why we we spent so much time and wrote this book is to give him the credit that he has deserved for so so long mm-hmm. and never received and I think this is you know we hope that this is sort of a turning
1: point yeah well, ever since we've been talking about this pretty much, I mean it's been apparent to me. That you guys have had that sort of dedication mm-hmm. to make sure that Honda is known. And if not just by fans, but, you know, throwing that out to the whole world, especially yeah. with this book. Uh, thank you guys so much for being on the show. Uh, the book is called, this is like me being pro here. <laughs> the book is called Ashiro <laughs> Honda, a life and film from Godzilla to Kurosawa. And it is available now. Uh, I bought mine through Amazon. Who gets no plugs or no gives me no money. So go get that book. And, uh, like I said, check out the link in the show notes to see any events that might be happening in your area. Steve, Ed, thanks for coming over guys.
2: Thank you, Kyle. Thank it's always you, a pleasure. Thanks very much.
1: <laughs> and I should note that just like
2: the first time I was on your show, uh, we had beers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Mine's empty. <laughs>